Power of a Praying Wife, and the other is entitled The Power of a Praying Husband. Uh, Stormy Omardian is the uh, author of both of them, and I'd like to recommend them to you if you would like to uh, see what it, we can be as husbands and wives to our partners through prayer. It's very insightful and, and is born of a very, very difficult relationship that she and her husband have had over many, many years, which is the fruit of that prayer is bearing out now in, in, a, in a wonderful relationship and a wonderful ministry. But Power of the Praying Wife and Power of the Praying Husband are two that we would uh, recommend to you all. This morning, as we go to prayer, I'd like to read from Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications, because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon Him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech Thee, save my life. Father, as we come to You this morning, You are the Savior. You're the one who has delivered us from the cords of death and from Sheol, the pit. And we look forward, Lord, to Your speaking to us today through Your Word. As we read these events from the life of David, the struggle that he had, and yet the faithful way he followed You, and the trust that he had in the midst of tremendous opposition, as the enemy sought to destroy David and to prevent him from rising to the throne of Israel, where he would become the archetype of Messiah. O oh Lord, I pray that you will help us to see the truths this day, which will strengthen and encourage and empower us for your work. We ask you, Lord, to be present throughout this Sunday school this morning in every class, and that you will touch hearts and lives and bring not only new life, that's that individuals who may be on this property this morning who do not know you will come to true faith, but that those who do have faith will be strengthened in their walk with you. And we trust you for these things because we know this is your will. In the name of Christ, amen. Today, if we could turn to the book of 2 Samuel and the second chapter, I'd like to begin reading at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Manaim. And he made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and even over all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. That simply means, of course, that he was king in Hebron for seven years and six months, and then later he would be king over all Israel at the city of David, Jerusalem. We've been looking at the death of Saul and Jonathan uh, there on the mountain of Gilboa and the crisis that this created in Israel. And the fact that this man, Abner, who was first cousin to Saul and commander-in-chief of Saul's army, uh, takes the initiative here to try to, really, to try to prevent David from becoming king over Israel. The question is, is if Abner was leading the armies of Saul on Mount Gilboa, how come he's still alive? How come he didn't stand shoulder to shoulder with Saul and Jonathan in that sort of last stand there on the mountain? Well, the scripture doesn't say. All we can do is assume that probably in the heat of battle, 
uh, the, he became separated from, from uh, Saul, and that in the rout he was able to escape along with uh, a portion of the army of Israel. Whatever was the case, as soon as he heard that Saul was dead, and he probably didn't know right away that Saul was dead, if he had fled off the mountain as many others had done, but when the word came through that Saul was dead, he immediately took charge of the only living child that belonged to Saul, and that was his son Ishbosheth, and he carried him away to make sure that he would be secure. <coughs> Hurried him over the Jordan River to a place called Maonim. I forgot to bring my little laser pointer this morning, so I'll use the old technology. <laughs> a pen. <laughs> uh, they show Maonim here which is probably a little bit displaced. It's probably about halfway between Succoth and where you see it there, probably right about in there. A lot of these Old Testament cities are hard to definitely prove their location. In some cases, they've been able to find the, the evidence of the city, they've been able to excavate the tell, and they've been able to come up with enough information to validate the site. Or, fortunately, in many cases, you have an Arabic name attached to that site today, which is the Arabic version of the old Hebrew name of the city, which helps to confirm its location. But in the case of Mayanim, its location is, is subject to some question. But we do know that it was here on the Jabbok River. So, maybe seven or so miles uh, to the east of the Jordan River, you have this, this town, this city, where Abner took Ishbosheth. Now the question is, if Saul and two of his sons, Jonathan and one other son, uh, died, actually three other sons, three sons altogether, died on Mount Gilboa, why is this fourth son still alive? Why did not Ishbosheth die as well on Mount Gilboa? Does this mean that Ishbosheth was not in the battle of Mount Gilboa, which many feel is probably the case? It's interesting that we have maybe a clue in his name. In 1 Chronicles chapter 8, we discover that his name is Eshbel, or Eshbel, if you like, which means man of Baal, B-A-A-L. Now, although Baal was the name of the dominant Canaanite deity of that part of the world in those days, the word B-A-A-L, or Baal, Baal, was also a common noun, which simply meant Lord. So some believe that probably Saul named him Man of the Lord, implying Yahweh. But what we discover is the actions of this man make it more clear that he was more a man of Baal than he was a man of Yahweh. And this seems to be validated by the fact that here in this passage he's called Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. Man of shame. Why would he be called man of shame if he was a man of the Lord? Well, of course, it could be because of his attempt to prevent David from going along with Abner, to prevent David from getting the throne, but it also could mean that he was viewed as really a man of Baal, the god which would be shame in Israel. Some commentators believe that the reason that Ishbosheth was not on Mount Gilboa was that he was a coward. Well, that you can only assume that. You can only read between the lines to assume that because there's nothing in the scripture to validate that except as we're going to see in his relationship with Abner. He's very much afraid of, of Abner. Well, whatever the case, Abner absconds with him. 
takes him over the Jordan River, takes him up to Manim in order to keep him in a secure place. We do not know that he put him there or, or that he had took charge of him and, and proclaimed him to be king because he felt Ishbosheth would be a better king than David. I don't think Abner thought that at all. What he wanted was Ishbosheth to be proclaimed king because Ishbosheth was his second cousin and he was the commander of the army and therefore because he would be dominant over Ishbosheth, he would rule Israel. So what we're looking at is a man desiring power for himself. How unusual, right? <laughs> What we're going to see is that Abner becomes the power behind the throne. This is a condition that has existed numerous times in history. We don't even know how many times in reality that the person who was out front as king when he was not really in charge and somebody behind the throne was, was operating the nation through him. And so he becomes a puppet, as it were, in the hands of Abner. I don't think Abner was concerned about God's will. Even though Abner will you know, make an occasional comment about God here or there, I don't think God's will was of any concern to Abner here. He knew certainly that Samuel had anointed David to succeed Saul. And yet, what does he do? He attempts to take the throne in effect for himself here and to ignore God's will that came through Samuel. A very, very dangerous position to take, of course. But if you don't really believe in the power and the reality of God, you'll do anything. I mean, our society is, is testimony to that, right? Every once in a while, you, you know, you, we're drawn together. The 911 thing kind of brought the country together, and we play patriotic music, and, and we have such a love for this nation. But then when you look underneath the surface and you see the vileness and the, and the evil that is, is practiced all through this country and the anti-God attitude that so many have, uh, you wonder how long we can be held together by just a, a facade of you know, nationalism and uh, so forth. It was an opportunity for Abner here not only to remain as commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel, but to actually rule the country. And he wasn't going to pass up this opportunity. The word name where he took Ishbosheth means two camps. That name was given to the place. It was actually originally just a campsite by Jacob 700 years earlier when Jacob had passed through this area and, and he had witnessed a vision of, of angels of the Lord and he called it two camps, which is the meaning of name. The camp of Jacob and the camp of the Lord were the two camps he was referring to and you read about that back in the 32nd chapter of Genesis. I think the reason Abner took Ishbosheth to this location was that it was relatively remote. It was not on the west side of Israel where the Philistines uh, of the Jordan River, where the Philistines were in charge, it was on the east side, up a rugged river valley. It's very rugged over there. If you ever get a chance to, uh, to visit <laughs> Israel and, and get a chance to look across into the Transjordanian area and you can see where the river Jabbok comes down and, and where it goes back, it's very, very rugged. Those hills are, are relatively dry. They're deeply incised by the creeks and rivers that run through it. And so it's, it's rugged terrain. And so he felt that he could keep Ishbosheth out of David's reach and, and out of the Philistine reach if he kept him secure back there in Mayanim. There at Mayanim, Abner took upon himself the authority to proclaim Ishbosheth king over Israel. 
In the passage we read this morning in verse 9, he said, King over Gilead, king over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, even over all Israel. By all Israel, of course, we do discover that there was an exemption because he did not uh, reign over the southern part of the land. Since he was the sole surviving son of Saul, Ishbosheth believed, Abner believed that this man had a legitimate claim to the throne because throughout history, tradition is the throne of a country goes to the son of the previous king, to the oldest son first, and if, if the oldest son is dead, to the next son in line, and on down. And he was the only surviving uh, son of Saul, and therefore he was proclaimed to be king over Israel. Saul had been king for 40 years. All of Israel was accustomed now to being a kingdom. It reminds me of uh, the event which transpired in 1649 in, in England, where the uh, country had been in civil war, and they became so upset with their king that they cut his head off, and they declared Israel to not be, uh, I'm sorry, uh, England to not any longer be a monarchy. And for 11 years, England was not a monarchy. There was no king in England. But the undercurrent was so strong that eventually they had to put a king back on the throne because the people had known nothing but a monarchy for well over half a millennium. And they couldn't even deal with the idea of not having a king. So a, a king had to be reinstalled. Now we're only talking about 40 years, but in 40 years time, many, many people had been born and they had known nothing but a kingdom and therefore kingdom would be preserved. In verse 10, we find that Ishbosheth was about 40 years old when he came to the throne of Israel. But the scripture says he reigned two years. <laughs> Not long. What did he think in his own mind about accepting a throne that he certainly knew as well as Abner knew had been promised to David? And he knew David was a far more gallant man, that David was a mighty warrior. But he accepted the throne anyway. It's really hard to turn down power. And we have the enemy sitting there talking in your ear saying, you, you deserve it. It's yours. Take it, you know. So Ishbosheth was willing to go along with Abner's plan. I think it's really important for us, even though we're, we're just, we can just read this like a story. Mm, you know, this guy did this and this guy did that and the other thing. It, I think it's important for us to always look behind the obvious scene behind the pages of history, behind the events which transpire, and realize that there is a spiritual warfare that has been going on ever since Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and were cast out of the garden. There's been a spiritual warfare going on ever since Satan said, God didn't really say that you will die, and they believed it. From that moment to this moment, spiritual warfare dominates the course of history, and we see it here in the events as they transpire. David would not be able to rule the northern part of Israel for a while. Thus his right to, to be king over all Israel is again set aside. He's been given a, a sop, so to speak, in that Judah has come and proclaimed him king over Judah, which did give him authority over the southern part down here of the land. But Ishbosheth ruled all of the rest of the kingdom of Saul. Inside these red lines you have uh, what is believed to have been approximately the kingdom of Saul. And so Ishbosheth ruled everything from Gibeah here, which was the home, uh, which was his home, 
all the way to the north, and, and David ruled just this small southern territory here. But David, nevertheless, would remain uh, in charge of that until he would be named king over all Israel. And for seven and a half years, he maintained his capital here at the uh, city of Hebron. That would be where David would be headquartered for the seven and a half years. And we talked about Hebron last time, so you have a little bit of a vision anyway of what that city was like. Well, let's read on in the um, second chapter of 2 Samuel, beginning at verse 12. Now Abner the son of Ner went out from Manaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Now let this young men rise, arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Helketh Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. And that day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. As we know, the scripture can be very laconic. Uh, it can state in, in one verse events which may took hours or even sometimes days and years. And so what we have here is, is a very interesting event. First of all, let me uh, again point out uh, Gibeon. From verse 12 through verse 29 of this particular chapter, we have the record of the, of the outbreak of the very first civil war between David and uh, the forces of Ishbosheth. I'm sure for David it was like... <sighs> I have struggled uh, with Saul, lo, these many years, and God has promised me the kingdom, and now Saul is dead, and I still don't have the kingdom. I still have to struggle. Does this sound a little bit like life? You know, We, we have a victory, and we come through it, and, and we think, oh, man, a little bit of smooth road out in front of us, and all of a sudden, black ice, you know, kind of deal. Uh, the road is always going to be bumpy and rough and, and uh, difficult. But, of course, our strength rests in the Lord. And that's where David shines forth. Because in spite of the messes David makes from time to time, David's basic direction is towards God with his eyes on him. And he's a man to quickly respond to God's direction. And that's why he's such a powerful example to us. Gibeon is located about five miles by road from Gibeah. Gibeah, as you see just to the right of Gibeon there, Gibeah, was the capital of Saul's kingdom. It was his hometown. It was where Ishbosheth undoubtedly was born. And uh, so this place, Gibeon, is not far from the heartland of Abner and Ishbosheth and their families. So the army under the command of Abner starts out over here at Maonaim, goes down the Jabbok Valley, down the Jordan Valley, probably to about Jericho, and then marches up the escarpment uh, to the top of the hills of Ephraim and over to Gibeon. That would be a trip of about 50 miles, roughly, 50 miles. And so they made that march and arrived there. And when they arrived in Gibeon, we, we're told in this passage that Abner sent a message to David. Now the question is, why did Abner choose this site? Well, first of all, we need to know. You see the, uh, right above the word Gibeon, the word Benjamin? 
This is the tribal territory of Benjamin, which is the tribe of the Saul family, the Saulite regime. And so Abner is in his homeland. He's in territory which is familiar to him. He's in territory where the people are likely to respond favorably to him if he issues a call to come and help him. And so Abner, like any wise commander, is choosing favorable field of battle. You look down through the pages of history, and the most successful generals have always chosen wisely the battlefield in which they would fight the enemy. And so it would be here for Abner. He sent a challenge to David. Come up here, David, and let's have it out. Who's going to be ruling is, is what this is really all about. Who's going to rule this country? Ishbosheth or you, David? Let's, let's have it out, toe to toe, sword to sword. Undoubtedly, David trusted in God's promise. Now, we, we, we don't want to stick a halo around David's head. David certainly thought, oh, no. Lord, you've promised me the kingdom, and now we've got another battle to fight. We've got Abner to deal with. But David responded to the challenge. He accepted the challenge. He went forth trusting God. And so he called Joab, who was his commander-in-chief and his nephew, and he said to him, take them in, go down there, and face off with Abner. Abner's forces were probably larger than Joab's forces. But David was trusting because over the years, David with 600 men had fought off much larger forces and, and been successful by God's strength. And so that was in whom he was trusting. Scripture tells us that Joab was the son of David's sister, Zeruiah. So obviously his, his nephew. And so Joab from Hebron down here marched north to Gibeon. That's close to 30 miles, a little less than 30 mile march by road in order to arrive at the battlefield. Abner, his name means father is light, faces off with Joab, whose name means Yahweh is father. Neither of these men live up to their names. They met each other by the pool of Gibeon. Today, it, uh, most certainly the pool of Gibeon is the, the great well at Gibeon that you can visit today. It's a very unusual well in that it's very large. It's 40 feet in diameter. It's 80 feet down to the ground surface that you can see down there. It, of course, had been filled with debris and clutter, and over the last 50 years or so, archaeologists have cleared it out. There's a stairway that goes down to the bottom of this well. It wasn't really a well, and it really wasn't a pool, because when you got to the bottom, there was a tunnel. And, and this tunnel angles down into the ground under the city, and, and you have to go down 167 feet to an underground spring. And, and that was the water supply for the city of Gibeon. And one of the things you find really fascinating when you go to Israel is several cities in Israel uh, were supplied by underground springs to which tunnels were dug to reach them. You, you find this, of course, in Jerusalem itself, but you also find it in, in several other cities of uh, Israel. For example, Hatzor and Megiddo also were cities where you had tunnel, underground tunnel work. So the Israelites were pretty good at digging underground and tunneling around and bringing sources of supply of water inside a city. Obviously, a city is indefensible if you don't have water. 
And sometimes the spring isn't really inside the city, it's down outside. And so you have to build a, a tunnel down through the rock in order to reach the supply. And so they had here at Gibeon. And so around the pool, they gathered with the forces of David on one side and the forces of Abner on the other side. They sat down and then they discussed, how shall we resolve this conflict? Do we want just pitched battle or, or shall we have a contest? What we discover here is that Abner suggested to Joab that let's just have a dozen guys on each side have it out. And, and whoever wins this 12, 24 man uh, contest, uh, whichever side wins, uh, will declare that the victory. And so Joab agreed to that. And there's 12 members of Abner's army and 12 members of Joab's army who get up, probably representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel, although there's doubt that each one was from a different tribe of Israel, but representing the 12 tribes anyway. And they came together, and it seems by what the scripture says that you have 12 duels, 12 contests of two men, not a melee, but 12 guys, each one picking another guy, from the other side and then having it out in battle. And, and the strange thing about this was they killed each other. It was all over. You got 24 dead guys and nothing is resolved by the whole thing. Again, you know, it, it, the scripture doesn't say this, but I think you can gather from this that uh, what's, what's the old phrase? Uh, the best laid plans of mice and men go off astray. Man chooses, but, but God is the one who brings about the result. And they had chosen this method, and it had produced no result, no answer to their dilemma. This is not a strange event. Trial by combat has occurred through millennia of time in history. Uh, even in the medieval world in Europe, trial by combat was not infrequent where you simply decide that the champion of one country should square off with the champion of the other country and whichever champion wins, you declare that side the winner, the other side the loser, and whatever was the issue is resolved that way. That works if both sides agree to it, of course. In this case, you had an agreement, but then you had a disagreement after it was all over because nothing was resolved. So what you have here is a general melee that, that breaks out. Now, what, was, what is the point of a trial by combat in, in the spiritual realm? Well, generally speaking, if you were to interview the people who decided let's have a trial by combat and let's put our champions together, that usually they invoke the, the deities in this matter. Usually they pray that the gods will resolve the issue by trial by combat. It's just like usually trial by ordeal when you try to determine whether somebody is telling the truth or is guilty or not guilty. You run them through an ordeal and if they come out the ordeal, you, what you're trusting is that God or the gods We'll, we'll bring them through if they're truthful and we'll kill them if they're false, or, you know, whatever it is. Some trials by ordeal were really stupid. You think about it, you, you throw somebody in the water and bound, bind them and throw them in the water and if they don't come to the surface then they're innocent because, you know, water accepted them, but if they float then they were guilty. Well, that's kind of like you die either way. I mean, it's not a whole lot of good in that. But in this case, what happened was the gladiatorial combat did not resolve the problem, and therefore it broke out into pitched battle between the two armies. Now, these are relatively small armies. The numbers are not given, but I would suspect that we're talking about armies that probably weren't much larger than 1,000 or maybe 2,000. They're pretty small forces that were involved here. Abner's forces, we're told, were defeated. 
by the forces of Joab. Abner, therefore, led his men in full-fledged retreat from the battlefield. I mean, they just ran. They lit out to try to escape from death. The spot where the contest was held, where the 12 men from each side died, the scripture tells us was commemorated with the name Helketh Hazarim, which means the field of the swords. So in the field of the swords, the 12 had died, but to no ultimate result, and therefore pitched battle and flight occurred. It's what happens next that really is going to make a profound difference in, in events in the future. Reading at verse 18, now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. And Asahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he said, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right, turn to your left. Take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. And Abner repeated again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How could I ever lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of his spear, so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Well, let's, let's, let's read on to the, to the end here. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which is in front of Gia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it, do, do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the, men, all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner and his men went through the Arabah all night, so that they crossed the Jordan and walked all morning and came to Maonim. Then Joab returning, returned from following Abner, when he had gathered all the people together, 19 of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. But, of the servants, but the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. They took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned in Hebron. You read a passage like that and you think, what does this have to do with anything? It's another little battle, a bunch of guys getting killed. What's the eternal importance of this? Well, again, I, I think we have to realize that we're dealing with not just physical combat, but with mighty spiritual warfare that is going on here. Because Satan does not want David to rule in Israel because he understood that through God's promise that from, through David and through his house would one day come a Messiah. Not that Satan understood of all, all that that meant, but he certainly understood that somehow redemption would be provided, and he doesn't want redemption to occur at all. And therefore, he's going to do what he can. And that's why throughout the pages of recorded history and scripture, you keep finding the attempts to destroy the house of Israel and the house of David in order to attempt to prevent the prophecies of God 
from coming to reality. As Abner and his men fled from the battlefield to the east, the forces of David pursued and Joab pressed the pursuit very hotly. We're told that Joab's youngest brother, Asahel, the word means God has made. Asahel, God has made. That uh, he was the most fleet-footed of the brothers. He could outrun his, his brothers. And so he focused on trying to catch Abner. The prize, you see. Asahel began to gain ground on Abner. Abner was probably a little older than Asahel, as well as not as fleet-footed. And so as he saw Asahel catching up with him, Abner tried to warn him to back off. Find somebody else to run down. Chase somebody. Get, get one of the other guys. You know, take his stuff when you get him. Leave me alone. But Asahel would not be thwarted from pursuing the greatest prize, which was Abner. Abner then warned him again. He said, why should I have to kill you? Because if I kill you, it's going to be bad blood between me and Joab. And that, and, uh, you know, if you've read ahead in this, you know that would be a very, very serious situation. He knew what would happen. He knew that there would be a, a desire for revenge if he was forced to kill Asahel. What we discover is that Abner's threat was no empty threat. Abner was a mighty warrior. Abner was no wimp who, who just happened to be in this position. He was a champion. And so Asahel was really outgunned here, you might say. And when when he caught up with Abner, Abner was forced to defend himself. Now, we can only imagine how this could happen, that, that you, you impale somebody with the butt end of a spear. It must have been a little bit more than, it must have had a little bit of a point to it in order for him to uh, do that. And, you know, you can think of all kinds of ways this could happen, and we, we aren't told how it happened. But uh, Asahel was impaled and died as a result. Abner had no personal animosity towards Asahel. He had no personal dispute with Asahel. He killed him in self-defense. But as we're going to discover, that would not mollify Joab one little bit. Almost nothing ever modify, or mollified Joab. When Joab set his mind to something, you just didn't move it, as we'll see as we pr proceed on. And Joab will ultimately one day uh, pay the price for his hot-headedness. When Joab and the others that were pursuing came upon Asahel's body, the scripture says they all stopped. Because obviously Asahel was not only a beloved brother, but was considered one of the, uh, of the great warriors. And they were shocked to find this, this man there on the ground. I'm sure that Joab and his brother Abishai immediately went over and tried to find out if, if there was any life left in, in Asahel, if, if he could be helped. And they discovered that he was dead. And so you can believe that when they renewed the pursuit, they did it with, with vengeance. They now had a, a personal reason to destroy Abner. And so the pursuit went on. The pursuit certainly was, was in this direction, from over towards the east, towards the great escarpment over there that drops down into the Jordan Valley, what is called the Arabah. About sunset, we're told in the scripture, that Abner and his predominantly Benjamite army finally gathered themselves kind of in a Custer's last stand on the hilltop. And, and as Joab and his forces came in, into view, he called out to, to Joab, and Joab stopped his pursuit 
and a conversation occurs, shouted, shouted across the little valley, probably between a couple of hilltops, between Joab and Abner. Now, both these people and both of these sides are very exhausted. I mean, they've been running, they've been pursuing, uh, they've been fighting along the way. Uh, the, the, you know, we're not talking about running down I-5. We're talking about running over hills and through rocks and gullies and carrying weapons in, in pursuit. And so they were all certainly approaching exhaustion. Abner tried to call off the whole thing, to halt the pursuit, to halt the battle. Now, we do not today know where Gia located. We do not know what hill is called the Hill of Amma. But certainly the, uh, the event took place probably right over in, right about there, just as the escarpment begins to drop down into the valley and towards the site of, of Jericho. Both sides, weary of the chase, stopped and rested while Abner and Joab discussed the situation. Abner opened the talk with a very, very graphic question. Shall the sword devour forever? His implication is this is civil war. We're killing, we're killing ourselves, our, our own people. Hasn't there been enough bloodshed for one day? After all, we're brothers. And as Joab listened to Abner's words, through his mind, of course, came the fresh vision of his, of his brother dead back there, needing to be buried properly and taken care of. And certainly also hearing the words of Abner. Abner was, in effect, admitting defeat. I've been vanquished. Isn't this enough? 360 of my men are scattered out on the, on the hills going back towards Gibeon. Isn't that enough? And so Joab showing a little sense for once, responded by invoking the name of the God that I don't believe he trusted much in and proclaimed that if Abner hadn't made this plea, Joab's men would have continued to pursue till morning's light. In other words, all night. So we're told that Joab blew the shofar, ending the pursuit. Called off the battle. Sounded retreat, if you will. What's interesting is we discovered that although these guys were all tired from the battle and the, and the pursuit, uh, they were certainly hungry because they hadn't eaten for, for many hours, they, neither side stopped. Neither side camped. They both marched. Abner's forces marched down into the Arabah, and they marched north through the Jabbok, and then they were, turned right, and it says at morning's light, they turned up the Jabbok Valley, and ultimately later that day arrived at Manaim. And Joab, what did he do? His went back, marched all the way all, uh, back to Hebron where he arrived at sunup. Well, let me just say this. In, in verses 30 and 31 of this passage, we discover the result of this clash this day. We're told that 19 men were killed plus Asahel. So 20 men died on the side of Joab of David's forces. If that 20 includes the 12 who died at the pool of Gibeon, which it most likely does, that means in the pursuit, Joab lost eight men, one of which was his brother. And yet when we read about the losses on the side of Abner, we discover 360 died altogether. So in the pursuit, if you subtract the 12, you got 348 dying against eight. That's a 43 to one ratio. And again, what this displays is not only, I believe, first of all, that God was on the side of David's army. Now, 
you know, we, we often talk about battles in history and which side was God on. Well, you know, I think in many battles of history, God wasn't really favorable to either side in many battles because they were as pagan as on both sides. But in this case, we're talking about a real stake in the history of Israel and in the future of the redemption of Israel. So God was on the side of Joab in spite of the fact Joab was not a godly man. And the forces of Abner were routed. But the other thing it also demonstrates, as I've mentioned before, the forces that are in retreat almost always suffer much heavier losses than the forces that are pursuing. Because when you're running ahead pursuing somebody, it's much easier for you to do him in than somebody who's running like this, trying to look behind, trying to get away to, to face the enemy without getting killed. Very difficult. And so as the result was, Abner's forces were badly defeated that day. God was defending David's claim to the throne of Israel. It isn't going to be over yet. More is going to happen. Abner is still going to persist. Joab is still going to act unbecomingly. But God will defend David. We could say, humanly speaking, of course, Joab had a little bit of an advantage. Even though Abner might have had a slightly larger force, the, probably the best and the bravest of Israel had died on the mountains of Gilboa. And so Abner had had to try to recruit a few guys at the end, you know, maybe guys who were green. Whereas Joab had the full flower of David's army, men who were battle-hardened veterans, men who had, who had been with David for a decade fighting and, and, and victorious, and therefore they were more mighty in battle, probably, than the men of Abner. But humanly speaking isn't how we have to view everything. Because if you look back through the pages of history, you find Joshua, you find Gibeon, uh, uh, Gideon, you find Samson, and you find others. And what rings through? Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. This is the message that rings down through the pages of history, through the scripture. Greater is he who dwells in God, in the people of God, than he who dwells in the men and the forces of the world. And so it would be that Abner would ultimately pay with his life for his attempt to resist God here. And he would die in a very undesirable manner. Joab and Abishai, of course, had pain too. They had to bury their brother Asahel. He was the youngest brother and probably, you know, this is kid brother. Always hard to lose kid brother, hard to lose any brother. But they had to take him back to Bethlehem. Fortunately, Bethlehem's about halfway back to between Gibeon and, and Hebron so that they were able to bury Asahel there in the family tomb mourned for a while and the morning took a while so that they didn't arrive back at Hebron until sunrise. Another sad day in the history of Israel as in virtually every case the tragedy and the bloodshed were the result of willful disobedience to the plainly revealed will of God. How more clear can it be? Willful disobedience to the clearly revealed will of God resulted in more tragedy and more disaster. Disobedience motivated by unbelief and selfish desires on the part of Abner, Ishbosheth, and those who supported them. Well, we'll go into the uh, third chapter uh, next week, and we're going to see the tragic results for Abner. <laughs>